Hey ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode six of our podcast. Every episode, Jessie will read from Time's Riddle, a story project we're working on. We've had such a good time researching it, working on it, and bringing it to you. And if you're listening to this now, and you're like us, you love thinking about how history connects to now. So at the end of the reading, stick around, because we'll be sharing some really interesting facts about the research that went into today's episode. At this point in our story, Constance Stoner has been commanded to venture into London on her own. Her task is to engage rooms at an inn for the Princess Cecilia when she wants a little alone time. So, to reminded people, let's start the reading. Chapter 6, The Strand, in which the mysterious letter changes hands and a friendship is formed. An errand in the city on her own, with only her servant Wynne trailing behind. This was something entirely new. Constance sat down the strand, unexpectedly liberated and content as she had ever been. She passed through Temple Bar, leaving the grand houses of Westminster behind her, and passing into the heart of the City of London, lively with horses, merchants, open doors, and shouting. She walked, remembering to stand tall, and Wynne followed behind. Lady, a merchant bowed to her. Constance thought of the half-smile she had seen Lady Elizabeth Clinton use when greeted by a commoner. She tried it. God save you, mistress, the merchant responded feeling as if she had just had a huge plate of plum pudding and no stomach upset to follow. Constance promenaded along the street, bestowing her beneficent greeting and feeling perhaps for the first time that she was actually gentry. She pulled her hooded cloak close to her chin with one gloved hand, just as she had seen Lady Elizabeth Clinton do. She wished for an enormous ring over her glove. That would be fancy. The crowd around St. Paul's Cathedral was thick. Constance pushed her way, trying not to lose her lofty expression. Mistress! Ready to bestow her elegant look, Constance paused. Wynne stopped short behind her. Ouch! (gasps) Pitikins! It was the horrible, bejeweled boy from Cecil House and his lackey. My astonishment at seeing you is immeasurable. I thought Lady Mildred ate you. The boy punctured his words with a swagger. I am too thin to make a meal, sir. Usually Coy was not in her arsenal, but she found it an excellent layer over distaste. You did not present yourself when we last met. Mistress Constance Stoner, she said with a curtsy. Hmm, and I am Edward de Vere. Constance knew this family's stature, but she would not give this boy the satisfaction of seeming impressed. The seventeenth Earl of Oxford, he dropped his voice, but as Constance did not register the awe he desired, his lackey became his target. The other boy made an exaggerated bow and swept off his riding cloak, laying it at Oxford's feet. Constance spoke up to save the poor young lad, making himself a fool with his cloak. My lord, I have no doubt who you are. I knew it the second I saw you. Well done. You yield a courtier's answer, Oxford smirked. And this is Robert Honeywood, a common ass and a knave. Honeywood arranged his outerwear as he gave her a nod. Oxford continued, Perhaps, mistress, we travel in the same direction. I am gallant enough to accompany you, if it is not out of my way. 
Dissembling a state of mind was easy, but something like a physical destination was hard to hide. I go to the Arundel Inn, Constance admitted. I lodge there, Honeywood said. This news created a spirit of cheer in the self-satisfied Earl of Oxford, who insisted that Honeywood give Constance his horse so they could accompany her. Honeywood helped Constance mount up. Sitting astride a man's saddle was uncomfortable, especially with wind squeezed up behind her, but Honeywood did his best to keep them from sliding off, and for that Constance was grateful. The view was fine, with the Cheapside Cross rising in front and the Church of St. Mary Le Beau behind. Arriving at the inn with the Earl of Oxford created a sensation. Mistress Arundel appeared in the lobby within seconds, Constance was struck by her ensemble and forward presence. The ladies at court did not look so fashionable or move with such smooth gestures. A Leonardo in the flesh. Philomena took Oxford's hat as a flock of servants descended on him. He had come once or twice to the inn, but she would love to count him as a regular, though she well knew he would make as much fuss as three ordinary courtiers. Oh, she curtsied, you honour me. And Master Honeywood? And worth mentioning or no, this is Mistress Constance Stoner, Oxford announced. Now, now, Oxford, Honeywood said. That is not a worthy introduction for the lady. The Stoners are more renowned for being stubborn than respectable, the Earl laughed. Stoner, Philomena considered. She had not connected it before, but now she recalled this family. Well-known Catholics? And this young lady? Had she not seen her at Mass two nights ago? Indeed, in the company of Lady Mary Howard. What a chance that this young gentlewoman had come to her inn. I lost a game to Honeywood, or so he claims the cheat, Oxford said. You, Mistress Arundel, are the beneficiary of the bet. I will pay for his rooms. The labour of settling debts is great, my lord. First you must dine, Philomena insisted. Will you join us? Oxford inquired of Constance. No doubt Honeywood would be delighted of your company. Oh, letter to a business, Oxford, Honeywood said. Where is this business? I had hoped to see him. How witly you jest, my lord, Constance said. My business is with Mistress Arundel. Oh, you're in need of money, Oxford said. It is true, your galouches are not of the latest fashion. You are mistaken, sir. I come on behalf of the mistress I serve at the Queen's behest, the Princess Cecilia of Sweden. Oxford sniggered. Ah, the Swede needs the loan. She has run through her bacchanalian budget. Constance was grateful when Mistress Arundel stepped in, sending Wynne off to the kitchen to get warm and inviting Constance to wait for her in her chamber. Constance realized she had been holding her breath as Philomena's servant led her out of Oxford's purview. She allowed an unwinding in her body as she followed through the rooms of the inn. The place felt busy, but not rushed. There was an ease to the atmosphere. She knew some nobles preferred a city inn to court and would keep a suite. As she caught sight of some gentlemen from Whitehall lazing about at a card game, she grasped the appeal. Her unaccustomed freedom was consequential. She had seen an unfamiliar part of the city. She was waiting in this pleasant chamber and her new mistress seemed unconcerned that she would ever return. It was all very unusual and exhilarating. Mistress Stoner, Philomena said as she entered her chamber, 
I welcome you to the Arundel Inn. How may I serve you? I come on business for the Princess of Sweden. She desires to take rooms here, Philomena curtsied. It would be an honour to have a woman of the princess's worth as a guest. I have a fine set of rooms, airy and well-lit, that would suit her grace. The stables and grounds would be at her disposal, as will my entire household. I thank you on her grace's behalf. She has sent this. Constance took the purse from her belt. My thanks. May I offer you refreshment? Philomena studied her visitor as they sat trading small talk of court and fashion. She could well be a relation of Lady Isabel Stoner of the unsigned letter, which even now was on the table at the girl's elbow. This stoner before her, whom fate had seen fit to bring to her inn, had soft grey eyes, dark hair, a slim figure held gracefully, about her own age, a birch sapling of a girl and a dutiful enough Catholic to risk attending an illegal mass. It seemed only right that she should share the discovery of the box and the intriguing letter. Forgive my boldness, Philomena said. I know this is out of the ordinary, but in truth I recently discovered something that might be of interest. I hope I do not overstep, but I did see you at the service. I beg your leave to show it to you. I am honoured. Constance mumbled awkwardly as she watched Mistress Arundel sweeping to the door, nodding the servants out, and turning the key in the lock. She must have some news about her family. Why else such caution? Constance took the proffered letter and read, With mentions of her kin, Lady Isabel, and the relic. What event led to such a letter? And the description of the innocent neck, the fall of the axe. Could it be Sir Thomas More himself of whom this person wrote? And Lady Isabel, did she pursue the search for his signet ring, even under the nose of the angry King Henry? It could not be. Why, of all places, had this letter landed here, at this inn? The strange appearance of this half-finished thing astounded her. And for pity's sake, who was the writer, and why would he keep back something sought after by her kinswoman? Constance turned the letter over and over, looking for a seal or crest, anything that would hint at the identity of the writer. Nothing. She looked up. Mistress Arundel, can you tell me who wrote this? Where did you find it? Indicating the box on her desk, Philomena said, Here. It must have been left at the inn years ago. The owner is long gone. It breaks off, as if the writer decided not to finish it, Constance observed. Or some harm came to him. Constance rifled through the box, scanning pages of verse in the same curly hand as the letter, but finding no signature or sign of identity, she returned to the missive. She read the page again. This speaks of Lady Isabel Stoner, my kinswoman, she said. The relic I, I do not know. Once Lady Isabel almost died to protect a relic. Could this be the same? Found? Philomena congratulated herself for taking a risk. This girl was not some fearful sycophant. And it was taken during King Henry's time. What sadness. So many things destroyed. Seeing that bit of the Virgin's cloak at the Mass, I felt I was on the threshold of the heavenly kingdom itself. How brave Signor Guzman was to bring it here. Constance thought the exact same. This wealthy merchant's daughter was of an unexpected similar mind. She felt giddy, conversing on dangerous subjects with impunity, more freely even than when she was at home at Stoner. She said, "'Tis true, 
we have so little left of the old treasures. And only the golden legend to remember the saints by, Philomena added. Oh, I love to read it. My favourite is St. Friswide, Constance said. Yes, I have seen her picture in the book, but I have forgotten the stories about her, Philomena observed. She was from Oxford, Constance said, as I am. There are many tales of her goodness, but the miracle that marked her happened when a man tried to force himself on her. How monstrous! She prayed for protection, and he was struck blind by the hand of God. Excellent, Philomena said, as it should be. He went mad, wailing, begging for forgiveness, and she did. She forgave him, and his sight was restored. She forgave him? Philomena rejoined. I could not have been forgiving to such a beast. Nor I to be truthful, Constance admitted. We will never be saints, tis a pity, Philomena said. I know of your family, how they have suffered. Constance thought of court, where her family's dogged adherence to the old ways was seldom characterized as anything but foolhardy. She glanced at Philomena, who was reclining in her chair, her musings punctuated by popping sweetmeats into her mouth. Constance said, My family has suffered and lost much. The Lady Isabel, the one spoken of in the letter, that lady had such courage, and her entire life she tried to protect the holy treasures of our family. Constance had been brought up to feel the destruction as a dagger to the heart. Her voice quivered. I was not born when these things happened, and yet it is a perpetual grieving. I look to this letter, and I find myself compelled to find the name of the author, to know what it means. It is your good nature, Mistress Stoner, and your piety to wish to discover the meaning of such a thing. Philomena sat across from her and spoke with urgency. I am your servant in such a fine wish. Our Catholic life is a secret. Should we not help anyone who shares our secret? Indeed, Mistress Philomena, it is too far a kindness. I cannot agree. How can you not? Indeed, I have thought of how to begin. One of the older servants may have something to tell, or might remember this writer. Mistress Stoner, I will keep the box for a time being, and I will see what I can discover. But it will serve you nothing, Constance said. To learn the fate of a relic could never be a nothing. I would count such an action as the greatest of my life, Philomena said. Constance wanted to spring up and embrace Philomena, but instead she dropped a curtsy. Will you say the Angelus with me? she asked. The bells are ringing six o'clock. Indeed. I have a rosary hidden away. We will share it, Philomena smiled. Making her way back to Bedford House, Constance replayed her talk with Philomena. Such ease, even when forbidden topics were broached. Philomena was quite daring, thought Constance. Careful, but not afraid. She envied the other girl a bit. No one checked Philomena's way. At Stoner, her aunt protected and worried for her. At Elizabeth's court, Constance felt eyes on her back, as did all the Catholic girls. But the Princess Cecilia and the ladies of Bedford House seemed a different lot. And while she was there, she could probably even return to Philomena's on her own to learn what the servants reported 
Indeed, if the servants had news, if they knew who wrote the letter, she herself could go and meet the fellow, the marvellous fellow who saved the relic, and she would bring it back to Stoner. She herself might do such a thing. Ow! She tripped on a loose stone in the street. Lady, are you well? A rather nice-looking father with a little boy by the hand steadied her shoulder. She curtsied. Fortune smiled on her indeed. She might have fallen face first into the horseshit of Thames Street, but here she was, upright. Reconsidering her reverie as she sat on her way, she weighed the chance of finding the author or the relic. There was almost none, she concluded. And yet she was set to do it. And this was the time, while in the service of the lax princess, once she returned to Whitehall and the watchful eyes of the court, the chance would be lost. In the beginning of this chapter, Constance is going out into a new city with only Wynne, and it's so exciting. Right, and her life is still about loyalties and duties, though, even though she has some freedom here. It's true. I think it's hard to imagine from a modern perspective that in the 16th century, it was an accepted fact that a person's worth was completely defined by their social status. Yeah, and I think it was also tied to religious beliefs that God determined the social order. So not to respect that order was dangerous, revolutionary, and pretty blasphemous, actually. Yes, and when Constance runs into the Earl of Oxford, I mean, she thinks he's an ass, but he's her better. And because of that, she has to force herself to respect him, and she has to behave. There's none of our modern American idea that calling people in authority out for their privilege is a noble thing. No, I mean, Constance herself would think she was better than her servant, Wynne, and that she was better than Philomena as well. I mean, Philomena is a merchant. However sophisticated and rich she is, she's still lesser than Constance is. But the religious bond, the fact that they're both Catholic, it's so strong in this time period, and that really binds Philomena and Constance. Right, and we tried to show that by this conversation they have, not only about their pasts and the raids on Stoner, but about the Golden Legend, because it's a book that they both would have been familiar with. So the Golden Legend is full of stories of the saints. It was a medieval mega seller. It was printed in every European language, not just in Latin, which means that it was read by a lot of different kinds of people. It's an encyclopedia of saint stories. And actually, at, at in 1501, I read that it sold more copies than the Bible, which is pretty unbelievable. Wow. So in its final sections, it tells tales of the miracles of relics. So the Catholic culture was so wrapped up with the saints and the relics. And in England, to lose this huge part of their culture, you know, it, it affected everyone. It must have been really difficult and so sudden to think of all these things that people had hung on to for hundreds of years, and then suddenly they just had to abandon them. So Constance, you know, perhaps for the first time since she left home, in Oxfordshire, she can speak freely with Philomena, and she's disconcerted by how openly Philomena talks about the situation of English Catholics. Yes, I think probably her conversation with Philomena is more candid than it would have even been at home. Right. Um, because the upper class has always, in a weird way, been less free to speak their minds, because authorities know who they are, and people are watching them. And really, there are not that many people in London at this time, less than 100,000. And the Stoners are such a well-known family. 
Right, and they're suspicious because they're known as recusants. Yes. So here, here Philomena and Constance are away from court in this inn with closed doors, and they really trust each other immediately because of these bonds that they have. Yes, and they saw each other at mass, so they also know they're both like a little daring. Yeah, a little daring and a little willing to put a lot of, of risk for their religion. Yes. So, so let's talk about someone else who spoke his mind, risked a lot for religion, and actually paid for it by losing his head. He's going to figure very large in this story. It's Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More. He was a chancellor to Henry VIII, and he's executed because he refuses to swear an oath recognizing that Henry VIII and not the Pope is the head of the English church. Right. So Thomas More was considered a martyr at his death, but Philomena and Constance don't speak about him as a saint because he was not actually canonized as a saint until 1886. For Constance and Philomena, searching out a ring of Sir Thomas More, it, it's just something, it's like you have the chance to find something remarkable, like Elvis Presley's scarf. <laughs> actually, I think it's more like John Lennon's scarf. I mean, John Lennon was shot. Elvis died on the toilet. It kind of changes things. But in all seriousness, relics were really valued. And I mean, they still are in many countries. They're not memorabilia, but religious treasures. And people consider them having life-saving healing powers. For Constance and Philomena, searching out Sir Thomas More's ring would be more a spiritual obligation than just a lark or or an adventure. No, that's right. It would it would be something they're kind of compelled to do by something they would think of as higher. And a relic a relic of Thomas More's, it would be within the realm of the relic, a very quality relic. I mean, the Catholics, you know, they had a hierarchy. There were types of relics, and they were called classes. And there are three classes of relics in the Catholic Church. The first class of relic is either a physical part of a saint, like their hair or a bone, or anything that was purportedly used during what the Catholics term the Passion of the Christ, such as the crown of thorns or a piece of the cross. Right, and a second class relic is a type of relic that appears that's what appears in our story. It consists of something that was owned by the saint or instruments of torture that was used against a martyr. Yes, and then there's a third class of relic, and that's something that has been touched to a first or second class of relic. So technically, if Constance you know, touched a hair piece to the ring, it would become a third-class relic. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's important to remember that hierarchy. So relics like the ones the stoners would have had in their chapel would have been kept in a reliquary. So reliquaries come in various forms. Sometimes they're beautifully um, jeweled boxes. They could be shaped like a Noah's Ark, maybe like a casket, or even in the shape of a body part, such as an arm or a leg. And usually they're decorated in gold and silver. We like to think that this ring would have been on a gold hand because it would have seemed like a good reliquary for where this ring could have been. Yes, yes. And Henry VIII tried to destroy the relics because he saw them as a threat to his power. He worried that people would revere the relics and they would put the relics above him. And actually, they probably would have. Absolutely. They would have been more loyal to the relics than to the king. 
And of course, Henry VIII destroyed Anne Boleyn. So Constance Stoner is not real, but her ancestor, who we talk about in this episode, Isabel Stoner, was. So there's speculation that she was the Mrs. Stoner in the tower with Anne Boleyn, and possibly that um, Mrs. Stoner was the mother of maids to Henry's four queens. The Stoners are such an important family, and they've been woven all through England's history, even though they're not one of the foregrounded families. I feel like we always hear about the Howards, um, but and of course the Boleyns. But, you know, the Stoners are there. They're always players. Right, and they've been there for many hundreds of years through the history. So anyway, we'll meet more of this strong-willed family as we continue. But that's all for today. As always, we have more info for you over on our Facebook page. And if you want to subscribe, which we really hope you will. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) So see you next time. And remember to listen for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. Bye. Bye.